Hello, and welcome to AARC Perspectives, where we will talk with members of the respiratory care community and learn about the experiences caring for patients and building the profession. I'm Doug Lair, Associate Executive Director at the American Association for Respiratory Care, and will serve as your host for today's episode. Since 1947, the AARC has been leading the effort to advance the respiratory care profession and promote high-quality, cost-effective, patient-centric respiratory care. The respiratory care profession is ever-growing and evolving thanks to the dedicated respiratory therapists around the world. Good afternoon, everybody, and with me today is registered respiratory therapist, Mr. Jeffrey Haynes. For those of you who don't know Jeff, Jeff is a national thought leader uh, in the respiratory care profession on respiratory physiology, pulmonary function and diagnostics, testing, and research. Jeff is a content expert, and we're happy to have him on today's podcast. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug, and uh, thanks to the AERC for inviting me to participate. Hey, our pleasure. Jeff, before we get started, I think that uh, it would be good for our listeners if you could give a little bit of background on yourself, talk about your experiences, how you grew up into the profession, and how you got to where you are today. Well, actually, I wanted to be a firefighter uh, EMT when I was in high school. And when I was in 10th grade biology class, I was randomly assigned a report that I had to write on a system of the body, and I was given the respiratory system. So my teacher gave me a pair of pig lungs and formaldehyde to take home, which today would be sort of a hazmat issue. But I brought the pig lungs home and put them on my desk and researched how the lungs work. And I became fascinated by it. Um, In high school, they had a program called Health Occupations, and they take you around the hospital and introduce you to new career possibilities. And I went to lab, and I thought that was kind of boring and x-ray, no offense to our x-ray colleagues, but I thought, well, you're just kind of taking pictures of bones. And then they introduced me to respiratory therapy, which I had never heard of. And I was already interested in how uh, the respiratory system worked and they had cool machines. And that's how I kind of got into respiratory therapy. And I've been studying it ever since for 30 plus years. I started off working first in critical care where young people kind of gravitate to. And I loved ICU and I still do and the ER and all that kind of stuff. But my real passion was respiratory physiology. And that's how I found myself uh, into the pulmonary function laboratory. And I've been in there ever since, 30 plus years. And people sometimes ask me, how long does it take you to learn how to do this? And I say 32 years. And if you ask me next year, I'll say 33. Just always have to keep learning and and, and Sometimes people say, wow, you you seem to know everything. And I tell them I'm haunted by how much I don't know. Uh, If you're not learning more, you're going backwards. And it's a career-long learning path. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Everybody's got their own unique story. I I remember I entered college hoping to be a dentist. Uh, That didn't turn out quite the way that that I originally wanted it. So I, I always love hearing people's stories about how they got into the profession and yours is no different, of course. So uh, really today, what we I think we want to talk about and why we asked you on, the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the world 
It has uh, globally impacted the respiratory care profession and from your perspective, specifically in the pulmonary function lab. So I'm hoping that you might be able to take us back a little bit back into the earlier parts of the year, maybe uh, February or early March, and, and talk to us a little bit about the factors that came about that led you to the closure of your lab. I assume that you you and your team acted fairly quickly in closing your lab, like we all had to make those tough decisions. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, the decision to actually close was kind of made for us. Um, our hospital working with the state of New Hampshire had strong recommendations on what we should be doing. Remembering back that uh, we didn't really know what was going to happen or how many people were going to get infected with this or young people going to get uh, seriously ill from this. So we had to take uh, an abundance of caution. And this really for for pulmonary function labs was the doomsday scenario. Labs going from full operation to shutdown in just a few weeks. Uh, I know of a lot of uh, technologists that were furloughed um, or had their hours drastically cut. Uh, A lot of people working in the pulmonary function lab were moved into the ICU. So I do both. So I'm happy to go into the ICU and work. But if you're a PFT technologist who hasn't touched the ventilator in 10 or 15 years and suddenly you find yourself in the ICU with unfamiliar uh, ventilators and strategies, we certainly manage ARDS different than we did even 10 or 15 years ago with critically ill patients with a disease that we is really poorly understood. I can imagine how stressful that would be and frightening, quite frankly, for these people. The industry was also affected because, you know, there are revenue losses for consumables like filters and other equipment, uh, preventive maintenance services, sales of new systems were significant. And that can be a problem because the manufacturers are really our partners in this. Uh, If a pulmonary function company went out of business, that would be catastrophic for the customers that they serve. Most importantly, though, laboratories were uh, forced to cancel weeks or months of scheduled appointments. And I don't think we're ever going to know what the full impact of test cancellations on delayed diagnosis and patient outcome uh, really will be. I saw several patients who had their tests delayed many, many months. One turned out to have undiagnosed pulmonary fibrosis. Another one had tracheal stenosis. So they were sitting at home uh, symptomatic with no answers uh, for months and months and months. Most labs like mine, we would still do what was deemed urgent cases. So if somebody needed a test for thoracic surgery, something to that effect, they would be done. But that kind of put the laboratory managers in a really difficult position because they were the ones who had to determine what constitutes an urgent case. I was mentioning those two patients before. Both of them had kind of mild symptoms. The patient with pulmonary fibrosis just had a cough. And a lot of times people look at a cough symptom and say, well, it's just a cough. Cough can be lung cancer. Cough can be COPD. Cough can be asthma. Cough can be pulmonary fibrosis, any number of things. Uh, The other patient had dyspnea on exertion. It's not an uncommon symptom. 
But as I mentioned, hers uh, was from tracheal stenosis. So, Jeff, if you don't mind me jumping in here, you had talked about the difference between urgent appointments and, you know, maybe schedules that, uh, or excuse me, appointments that were scheduled for elective surgeries. If you were to uh, venture a guess, what's the percentage of business in your pulmonary lab between those urgent cases and elective cases that you do in your in your lab? It was enormous. Um, we were in a community hospital, so we're not like a, a big hospital that has uh, 10 technologists working at all times. But some days, most days, we actually didn't do any testing um, or there would be one or two tests in a day. And you're looking at a place that was pumping out 80 percent, 90 percent more than that. So clearly the financial impact on the hospital was great, too. In, in your response just a few minutes ago, you had talked about not fully being able to understand the total impact that this pandemic has had with uh, patients in need of pulmonary function testing. If you were to put your finger on it, how do you think that will be measured? Can it even be measured? It's a good question. I'm not sure how it could be measured. And that's why I think we just will never know what the impact was. So we'll just have to wait and see and see if there's some way that uh, that can be studied. But it's certainly should be part of the thinking, heaven forbid we have another pandemic like this, I think we'll approach it a little bit differently and perhaps take these things into account. Uh, that maybe even in a pandemic, there's a safe way for us to take care of patients. So just to make sure that our listeners um, understand correctly, uh, am I to understand properly that your lab is now fully open and operational? We are. We're not testing quite as many patients as we did before just because we space out the appointments so that the air exchange occurs in the room. But uh, we've done some creative things to make sure that we can get patients in and be tested. We're doing basically every test that we offered before. We do require a negative COVID test prior to a cardiopulmonary exercise test or an exercise laryngoscopy. For exercise challenge testing, we're substituting mannitol challenge for that. But we're doing all the tests we did before, including six-minute walk, uh, methacholine challenge. We're not doing them the same way, but uh, we are doing all the services that we offered before. So obviously, you had to make some pretty tough decisions and uh, really dig into the details to analyze the data to be able to make the decision to fully reopen your lab. Are there any resources or tools or guidance documents uh, that you might be able to recommend to some of our listeners who um, may not be in the same capacity that you are, but want to move in that direction? Well, I think the first step is to coordinate uh, with the medical director of your laboratory and work with your in-house committees, infection control departments, that sort of thing. But it's important that the manager or the supervisor of the PFT lab is part of the process. And I would even say takes the lead on the process. Uh, you don't want to have people uh, making decisions on a workflow that don't understand the workflow of the pulmonary function lab. And you find yourself in a position where you really can't operate ideally. There are a number of documents available. The first one uh, was published by the European Respiratory Society, and it was published on May 4th, which the timing was great. I really like this document a lot because it talks about three different phases and the safety uh, that you need to take in the dif different phases. Uh, the three phases are the peak of the pandemic, uh, post-peak, and uh, post-pandemic. And that's kind of, I think, an attractive way to do it because you can shift your policies based 
on where you are um, in the pandemic and the community prevalence. Unfortunately, the American Thoracic Society um, document didn't come out until July 14th, um, and many of the labs had already opened. This document included PFT, bronchoscopy, sleep, and pulmonary rehab, so I'm guessing that's the reason why it took a long time to be published. Both of these documents are open access. Uh, they've been shared on the diagnostic specialty page of AERC Connect, uh, and I would also include AERC Connect, specifically the diagnostic specialty page as a great resource. Uh, there's a lot of people on there sharing documents, sharing experiences. People are able to ask questions and get uh, their questions answered by experts in the field. Yeah, that's that's great feedback. Uh, and and just as a point of reference, those documents that you referenced are those are all open source. So so any 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 one of our listeners can go access that content. Yep, you can find them on the ATS or the ERS websites, um, but you can also find them on AARC Connect if you're a member of the diagnostic specialty section. Uh, I posted all that information there. And I would be remiss if I didn't put in a plug for the AARC diagnostic specialty section, uh, where you can get all of this information and much, much more that the Jeff has shared with you. And now back to our regular programming. Jeff, so when we when we talk about the reopening of the lab, you talked about some some pretty unique and specific steps that you took requiring negative COVID testing and some other things. Uh, that's a that's a constantly moving target, right? And so I'd love to get your feedback on how you came to some of those decisions. I, I can only assume that it was in collaboration with your medical director. Uh, was there was there science and data supporting that decision, or was it? And I know that we just talked about some of it, but were there steps that you took outside of those those recommendations from ERS and ATS? I, I I'm just fascinated by how you put this puzzle back together with a different outcome in mind, so to speak. So you couldn't go to a textbook uh, and find out this information, obviously. And there really wasn't a whole lot of data. Most of it was based on expert opinion. I based my reopening pro, uh, proposal mostly on the European Respiratory Society statement. I, I liked the document very much. And as I said, it was published at a good time in the beginning of May. And I think having your uh, proposal uh, linked to a professional document uh, shows that you did your homework, that you weren't just kind of winging it and making it up, and it shows that you're doing uh, best practices. Um, I think it's very important to consider your proposal and how it will affect operation. If you make the rules overly restrictive, you might find it very difficult to operate and difficult to get patients in for testing. There are many laboratories that mandate that every patient has to have a negative COVID test prior to any PFTs. I think that can be a logistical nightmare if you think about people forgetting to go get tested or they're supposed to get the test results in three days, but they haven't come back yet. So as I mentioned earlier, we chose not to do that. Uh, we chose to only do it in the higher risk procedures like cardiopulmonary exercise testing and exercise laryngoscopy. There's a very high minute ventilation with those tests, uh, higher uh, chance of a lot of coughing, and it's very difficult to filter. So 
I built the protocol based on the ERS statement, but I did it very carefully and said, how is this going to work? I don't want to paint ourselves into the corner that we we can't operate efficiently. Jeff, I know that you are a researcher and you've got many publications to your credit. Uh, are you currently in the process of collecting any data from, from your new procedures and processes? Not new procedures, but new processes to keep patients safe? Um, I'm not doing that myself right now, uh, but I have uh, reviewed a couple of publication uh, papers that have been submitted to journals that are looking at things like uh, aerosol um, safety, um, how long, if you're giving a nebulizer, how long is that stuff floating around in the room? So there is a lot of work being done on that in that area. One piece of data that I think is very helpful for not just pulmonary function technologists, but also for respiratory therapists is a study that was came out of Wuhan, China, and they looked at the nurses who had given nebulizer treatments uh, to COVID-19 patients, and they found that none of them got sick uh, from doing that, and they attribute that to the fact that they wore full PPE uh, when they're doing that. So for pulmonary, I never thought in a million years that I'd be doing a pulmonary function test in full PPE with with N95, a shield, glasses, a head cap, gown, gloves. But that's what we have to do. And that protects uh, the patient, but it all pro- also protects you. So there is research in this area. Um, I'm not currently uh, doing anything. I'm honestly too busy right now. You had you'd mentioned PPE. I, I, I'm glad you did. I know that uh, the country... Hospitals, healthcare workers everywhere were really struggling with access to proper PPE early on. Now, I know that you said that you would shut your lab down uh, as soon as things got bad uh, back in late February, early March. When you reopened, did you face the same struggle that many other healthcare providers did in in getting access to PPE? It's kind of waxed and waned. Uh, There's been times when we've had to be more conservative with PPE. There's other times where seems to be plent- seems to be plentiful, so I think it's important not just in the pulmonary function lab, but um, in other areas of the hospital that we conserve PPE as much as we can. Uh, one of the things that we do in our ICU is we use a particular ventilator where the monitor comes off the ventilator, and we have the monitor the cables long enough so the monitor is outside of the room, so you can make ventilator changes, you can um, silence alarms, you can do all that stuff without entering the room. Each time you'd enter would be another set of of a gown and gloves and all that sort of thing. So certainly um, you want to, wherever you are in the the hospital, you want to be taking measures um, that you're not wasting PPE unnecessarily. I know you mentioned earlier that uh, some of your colleagues, I believe they were your colleagues, uh, maybe not, were furloughed. Did, did any lose their job or just furloughed? Did, are, are you back to full staffing? Nobody lost their job. There were people who were furloughed, but at least in my area, uh, most of the pulmonary function technologists that I knew were you know, pushed into the ICU. And some had had recent experience doing that, and some hadn't done that in a long time. I do think that working in the PFT lab does make you well suited to deal with ventilators because you're dealing with pressures, flow, time, volume, and all kinds of graphic representations of those things. So I've always thought that being a pulmonary function technologist actually gave me a little more insight into 
pulmonary physiology when the patient's on the working end of a ventilator. So you're you're back to being full staffed with all of the donning and doffing that's required with your PPE, all of the special procedures or changes to your procedures and policies. Are you still able to operate at full capacity? Or uh, I would assume that uh, each procedure now takes significantly longer than previous. Have you had to shrink the the output from your lab as a result of that? We've actually tried to make the testing session shorter. We traditionally used nebulizers for bronchodilator delivery in our pulmonary function lab. So the thought was, you know, if we can shorten the amount of time the patients in the laboratory, we may be able to get more patients in per day. And we certainly don't want the technologists to be rushed cleaning up the room before the next patient comes in and that sort of thing. So one thing you can do is the way we our workflow has changed is we'll do spirometry first, then we'll do airway resistance and, and lung volumes, uh, or we do pheno as well. Uh, we encourage the patients to bring in their own inhaler and use their own inhaler. When they do that, it's obviously quicker to deliver bronchodilator with an inhaler. It also gives us a chance to do some teaching, and we've had patients who come in with an inhaler that was expired in 2014. Every kind of bad technique you can imagine we've seen, and that's not a new concept, but uh, still kind of reinforces in your mind that teaching of inhaler technique is very important. You even had one lady who had a, a, a new inhaler times two weeks. She'd been using it for two weeks, and she had taped the label that came on the box around the inhaler so you couldn't actuate it. So she'd been using this drug for two weeks, and she hadn't actuated a single dose. So switching to the inhalers uh, makes it quicker. And then what we do is instead of waiting 10 minutes for the bronchodilator work, we use that 10 minutes to do the DLCO tests. They have to be separated by four minutes. So usually we only have to do two, but sometimes we have to do three. And by the time you're done doing the, the DLCO test, it's time to repeat the post-bronchodilator uh, spirometry. We do post-bronchodilator airway resistance and um, patients out the door. So this is fascinating to me then because as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, you've innovated during this process. You have identified new efficiencies. And so it, this could potentially be a silver lining that comes as a result of this, that you've improved efficiencies on the back end moving forward. So so very, very exciting. That, that's interesting to me. Yeah, well, there's also increased interest in doing testing at home. So technology gets better and better. And, uh, you know, pe- patients have had home peak flow meters for, for years, but now they all have their own pulse oximeter. And, and now you can even do spirometry testing at home. So, yeah, I mean, in this pandemic, the telemedicine and even telediagnostic testing is, is, a, is a growing field. So I know our, our sleep folks on the, on the line have, have lived through that, moving from sleep testing in the lab to sleep testing in the home. Uh, do you think that that's a very real possibility? How, what's, what do you think the outlook is for that? I think it's uh, something that you can't stop. There is a company that has a package where patients record symptoms and pulmonary function. Um, to try to predict when interventions should be made. I think it's a good thing. I don't think, I think the void can be filled. Uh, As you know, um, pulmonary function testing is underutilized. 
Uh, in some studies, you have 30% of people who are diagnosed with COPD ever having a test. So I would hope that that void would be filled with diagnostic testing. There are certainly tools we can use for screening, like the 20-40 rule. If you're smoked more than 20 pack years and you're over 40 years old, you should get screened for COPD. And I think that should still be in the hospital. Uh, I think more of the testing you'd have at home would be looking at patients longitudinally. And of course, they'd have to be able to prove that they could do the spirometry uh, correctly. But I think uh, things always evolve and we can't be afraid of that evolution. We have to um, be part of it and make sure it's it, the quality that we require for pulmonary function testing is preserved. Sure. You know, we, we spoke uh, at length, or you did, uh, about your experiences. If you were to leave any parting thoughts with our listeners today about how they can take specific steps to keep their labs running safely and, um, and keep their patients safe, more importantly, uh, what would that be? Well, there are a number of them. I'm just starting off environmentally. Um, you want to make sure that there's physical distancing in any waiting areas. Uh, negative pressure room is ideal, uh, not always possible. You have to be careful with negative pressure rooms. You can't make too much negative flow because it can affect uh, pneumotax and such like that. You can certainly put clear barriers between the patient and the technologist while they're doing it. All personnel just have to wear PPE, full PPE. Uh, talking to the patient before the test about cough etiquette, of course, we have to use uh, filters that everybody's doing. I talked about changing your workflow. So you do spirometry, uh, lung volumes, give the bronchodilator, then do DLCO, cut down on time using MDIs. If you have to use a nebulizer, because we do methacholine challenges, um, and then we have some patients who come in who are obstructed who don't have an MDI or they forgot it at home, we use a filtered uh, breath-actuated NEM uh, so that everyone stays safe. Uh, we still do six minute walks, but the patient has to wear a mask. And it, in our um, hallway that we do it on, it's a low traffic hallway. Some people have concerns about well, what's the effect of wearing a mask. Well, that's been studied. There was a paper in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society done uh, in normal people and people with COPD and wearing of the mask did not affect oxygen or carbon dioxide. Uh, and in the closing, um, my closing thought uh, on this is uh, it's very important that we take these measures because you're serving a community. Your pulmonary function lab is serving your community. And there are patients out there who have symptoms with no diagnosis, who have problems that haven't been discovered. And if you have your lab um, so restrictive that you can only test a few people a day and you have um, – people waiting three or four months to get in and be tested, I would suggest that you, you may not be serving your, your community as well as you should should be. Jeff, uh, just to put things in perspective, how big is your laboratory? So I, have, I work at two hospitals. One has uh, three tests, uh, testing areas, and the other just has one. And as a follow-up to that, then uh, you had talked about 
what could be perceived as some rather significant upgrades environmentally and from a staffing perspective, et cetera, equipment perspective. Financially, was was this a, a heavy lift for your department? How much, if any, dollars were needed to invest into the lab to, to get your lab in a, at a point where you were compliant uh, with all the safety uh, protocols that you wanted to wanted to run? Very little. I mean, they have the, the PPE issue, but we had uh, one room, uh, negative pressure room with the air exchange time was 45 minutes. And we wanted to get that down to, to 30 minutes. So we worked with our, our facilities people and they made modifications and they got the air exchange down to 30 minutes. That opened up a, a couple more testing slots per day. But it really didn't cost. It was costing us money not to do testing. Um, it didn't really cost much money to do things safely. It just took um, time and, and careful planning and uh, really think this through of how this workflow is going to be with these kind of rules in place. So we've had, I, I expected that there would be a lot of patients who would be reluctant to come in, uh, even though we opened our doors, but I haven't found that to be the case at all. And I also think it's very important to be open with the patients. I, I explained to them, these are the safety measures we have in place to keep you safe um, and kind of put their mind at ease. Uh, even sometimes we have patients who are waiting. If one test goes a little bit long and the patient's waiting in the waiting room, I'll go out and talk to them and say, we have to wait 10 more minutes for the air to be completely exchanged so that you, you're kept safe. Uh, and uh, they appreciate that. So talking to your patients about what you're doing to keep them safe and in that instance, you know, why I'm waiting you wait, make you wait 10 minutes more um, can be very helpful for them. Yeah, that's that's all great information. And I, I, I love the fact that you emphasize the piece about communicating with the patient so they know exactly what to expect during their experience. But what I heard you say is that you work in, in a small to moderate size lab. You were able to make these changes and make accommodations to continue serving your community and the public at very little um, cost to the organization. And you're not at a large academic center. You're not at the Cleveland clinics or the Mayo clinics of, of the, or the John Hopkins of the world. And, you know, so uh, relying on efficiencies in order to accommodate these changes wasn't necessarily needed. So I, I applaud you, Jeff, for your efforts, for your volunteerism to the association and, and serving as an expert to, to those of us who are listening today. I just want to thank you for serving as, as one of our inaugural uh, guests on the AARC Perspectives podcast and look forward to uh, working with you again in the future. Thanks so much for your time today, Jeff. Thanks, Doug. Uh, pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to AARC Perspectives. Be sure to check out our show notes page for information about today's episode, as well as links to our other podcast episodes. Be sure to know when our next episode airs by subscribing to our podcast. Until next time, my friends, keep on supporting the respiratory therapy profession.